Well, we don't have a lot of time this morning, so I'm going to move quickly. We are in a series, a new series that we have entitled Living in Expectation. And Pastor Keith has talked about the idea of celebrating Advent, the preparation and expectation uh, of the season of Christmas. And as we go through these next uh, four weeks that will uh, culminate uh, on Christmas Eve and the celebration of the new birth uh, of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, I want you to be so very careful. And as pastors, as preachers, we need to be careful of this because we hear the same story. We learn about the same characters. Uh, the same texts are preached. And we think, oh, we've been there. Uh, we've done that. Uh, but I want you this year with expectation in your heart to say, Lord, what do you have to teach me this Christmas? What things have I forgotten? What are the, uh, the understandings that I need to have in regards to this great celebration of our Lord and Savior coming as a baby uh, to take the sins away uh, of you and I and, and to redeem us and to bring us back to uh, Himself? I want you to pray this, uh, this coming season uh, that you would be taught some new things. Maybe the stories may be the same, but that God would reveal to you something new about that incredible story of Christmas. That it would move you in a different way than ever before. That your Christmas celebration uh, would not be the same. And so this morning we look at the book of Isaiah. As we look each week, we're going to be looking at a different group of people and look at their way of anticipating and expecting the coming of Messiah. And we find ourselves today in the book of Isaiah, if you will turn there, Isaiah chapter 9. A great passage of Scripture, one that if you've been in church for any amount of time or, or heard any Christmas carols, you have no doubt heard this passage that we're looking at this morning. And I would ask that as you turn there, you would stand as we look to God's Word. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9. Let us stand as we read God's Word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness, verse 2 says, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you. As people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on His shoulders. And He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and, uh, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish 
this. Father God, we again come to Your throne thanking You for Your Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the mighty God, everlasting Father, and our wonderful Counselor. Father, we pray that You would allow Your counseling to take place in our hearts today, that we would be changed as we observe You and look to Your attributes, that we would see that You are God and we are not. To You be the glory, honor, and praise in Your church. In Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. What's in a name? What is in a name? What is it about maybe your name that tells the world a little bit about who you are? I've told you why my parents named me Timothy Daniel some weeks ago. And this, uh, and, and we can talk about how maybe you were named and some of the uh, things that came up at the time of your birth or, or the expectations of your parents that gave you the name that you did. But very few times does a name ever lead to being exactly what you are called to be. Meaning that your name would be something that would coincide with the ministry or the occupation that you have. As I began to explore that, I came upon a word I've never heard before, and it's aptramen. And aptramen is a compound word of the adjective ap, meaning aptitude, and then the Greek word for name. Literally what this means is this is a phenomenon when, when someone's name and occupation line up perfectly. I began to then Google this idea and, and I found some real life aptronyms uh, that are seen in the United States. We have Dr. Bowser, who's a veterinarian. We have Roy Grout, who's a bricklayer. I like this one. It's probably my favorite one. Dr. Otto Wack, who's a chiropractor. Then there's Dan Druff, uh, the barber, another favorite of mine, Dr. Pullenhard, the dentist, and then your mechanic, Dr. I'm not doctor, your mechanic, Otto Nogo, Dr. Smiley, the orthodontist, Sonia Shears, your hairdresser, and one that will gross you out a little bit, Dr. Whitehead, the dermatologist. And then who can forget Dr. Smelzy, the podiatrist? Names that correspond with their mission, their job, their occupation. Today we look in Isaiah chapter 9 to four names that coincide with the great ministry of Jesus Christ. Four names that Isaiah shares. He doesn't share much about the coming Messiah, but he says, you want to know who the coming Messiah is? You want to know who we are to celebrate this Christmas? Let me tell you his names. His name is Mighty God. His name is Prince of Peace. His name is Everlasting Father. And his name is Wonderful Counselor. Now Jesus has far more names than that. But the prophet finds himself articulating words that he had heard from God himself. These are the names that are important for us to remember. But to be able to understand them, to be able to uh, enjoy them, we need to understand a couple things. Because in a name is found, first of all, the answer to our corruption. Write that down in your outlines this morning. In the name of Jesus, we find the only answer to our corruption. 
Now you say, Tim, where where do you see all that? Notice what uh, verse 1 says in our text. It starts with the word nevertheless in the NIV translation. Nevertheless. And what that means is we need to look back and see the contrast that started before that. If verse or chapter 9 starts with the idea, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress, we must look back and notice in verse 21 and 22 of Isaiah 9. It says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness, and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Chapter 8 is a chapter that speaks of the futility of the people of Israel in their day. They had rebelled against God. They had pursued other gods. They had desired to be like other nations. And because of that, God was sending the Assyrian nation to bring forth His judgment on the people. And because of that, the word of the Lord had become silent to the people. Whether because God not speaking uh, to his prophets, but also there was not only just that, but the people unwilling to listen to the word of the Lord and to the word of the prophets. And so we have this season of time that is full of despair, gloom, and judgment. It says, in fact, in chapter 9, verse 2, that they lived in the shadow of death. Now, I don't know about us. We don't have the risk uh, uh, or fear of an invading army, nor do we find ourselves uh, all full of despair. But there's no doubt that those without Christ Jesus find themselves there. In fact, this time of Advent, this time of Christmas, a time to be so glorious and so wonderful is said to be one of the greatest times where people deal with suicidal thoughts and depression. How can something so great, how can something so awesome bring forth such despair and gloom? Well, if you don't have the real reason for the season and you're missing out on the whole reason of celebrating Christmas... You see, because we in our, even in our American culture, which has now uh, gone out to other cultures as well, is we get this idea that Christmas is all about us, uh, buying gifts for me and, and making sure that I get what I want. And so what happens is, is we put our list together, like many of our children do, and say, I want these things. I will be happy on Christmas Day when I open these gifts. But what happens? Uh, the gifts don't come. Maybe your family or friends didn't know you wanted that particular gift. Or maybe you thought that all the parties and all the revelry and all the gifts and all the holiday fun would change uh, the way you feel. But don't you know that January rolls around and we've got to go on diets because we partied and ate too much. Uh, We have all these New Year's resolutions because of all these bad habits that came as a result of it. And yet... Uh, we we lose out the, the the all the fun and all the gifts they lose their place because january rolls around and it's just a new year same old same old and now you got more debt now you carry around a couple more pounds and the gloom begins to fill in the coming of jesus was not to be a time of gloom it was to come into a world of gloom a world of despair and to change it dramatically 
Isaiah 9 is a word of encouragement for us, his church. It's a word of encouragement because it reminds us that Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is the only one. You see, in this doom and gloom and despair of Isaiah 8, it begins to open up the floodgates in Isaiah 9 to the encouragement that God has for his people. Notice what we see in regards to this, because Jesus brings forth a supernatural, first of all, a love. He brings a love, and I want you to add beyond that, a love because of our despair. A love because of our despair. Nevertheless, he says in verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. We need to understand that Christ came just as he did in Bethlehem, as he does today to a world that is full of gloom. The reason why there is gloom is because of the corruption of our sin. We are blind, dead, and held captive by the evil one. And because of that, we pursue things that only bring us pain and suffering, that advertise great change in our life, great good in our lives, but like so many gifts under the tree, the things that are advertised never live up to what they're offering. And just like that, sin says you will feel this and you will enjoy that. But we begin to consume that sin or participate in that sin. And it only leads to gloom and despair. Love because of our despair. For some, this season is not a season of hope, but a season of despair. Your life is is no good. You, You have nothing going well for you. You're like the people in Isaiah's day who were full of gloom and despair. But there's good news. Love came into the world. God loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. That God demonstrated His love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were in our gloom and despair, in our darkness, God demonstrated His love by sending Jesus Christ. He sent love. Notice the next thing that we see. We see that there is love in spite of our darkness. And then light, because of the darkness we live in. Notice verse 2. There's no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he speaks about humbling lands. And in verse 2, he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have walked in darkness. The idea here is in utter despair. Total darkness. I don't know about you, but have you ever tried to walk in, in darkness? It's difficult, especially if there are all kinds of obstacles in the way. And the people of Isaiah's day found themselves trying to live life by living in the darkness. And it led them nowhere. Because of this darkened thinking, the the text says in chapter 8 that they pursued mediums and spiritists that would tell them where to go. But now because what the spiritists and mediums had said, they were angry because they had not become fulfilled. They had not become reality in the lives of the people. And so now the people were angry. Isn't that what it's like to live in darkness? When we find ourselves seeking out light in any form that we can find, and then we become angry with that source of light, even though it's not Jesus, we get angry and say, well, you were wrong. You said this was going to happen, but it didn't. These people lived in utter darkness. And just like the people in Isaiah's day, we too, as people in 2009, live in utter darkness. We find ourselves living and wandering for self. Living for self and wandering through life, pursuing the things of self. And notice what the prophet proclaims. He says, a light is going to dawn. 
And that light was fulfilled in the city of Bethlehem. When that star shines so bright that wise men from afar could see it and be led to that baby born in a manger. We need light in a world of darkness. And finally, we need life in a world of death. Notice what verse 2 says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Death. A word that scares the daylights out of us so many times. Death. A word that chills us on the warmest of days. Death. A thing that we never want to be a part of. And yet they say that the Israelites lived in the shadow of death. Death. There's no hope when we talk about death. There is no good outcome when we talk about death. When we live in that shadow, except when Isaiah says that a light has dawned. Amidst darkness, amidst death, a light has dawned. What incredible words of praise and rejoicing. This is what Christmas is all about. In a world of despair, a light has dawned. In a world of trouble, a light has dawned. In a world of darkness, a light has dawned. And we, in the shadow of death, finding ourselves trying to live for self, Jesus came and He was a light in a world of death. That's Christmas. The light has come. Jesus would announce in John chapter 8, verse 12, that He would be and is the light of the world. This is why Christmas can be summed up in this verse. A time where our gloom is turned to gladness. A time where we have uh, maybe not gotten the gift that we were hoping for, but we can say, no matter what gifts are given under the tree, that joy to the world, the Lord has come. But who is He? The second thing I want us to look at is the attributes of Christ. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Messiah? Who is this King of glory? In verse 6 and 7 of chapter 9, it says, For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now I think it's important that you understand what, what Isaiah is saying. There's a form of repetition here uh, that is articulating, first of all, the importance of what he's saying. He says a child is born and a son is given. But through these prophetic words, we learn that this coming Messiah would be something different, someone different than anyone we've ever known. A child is born speaks of the humanity of Christ. A child is born. This child would have a beginning in his life, and that beginning of life would come at the place called Bethlehem. He would be born. He would have a mother. The Holy Spirit would be his father. And that would bring us to another part of it. Even though he was fully human, though he was one of us, though he would live amongst us, the, I, the book of Isaiah says that a son is given. Now wait a minute. A child is born, but it says a son is given. It speaks of Christ's deity. That though his humanity had a beginning in Bethlehem, that John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Unlike the cults of our day, Jesus is not merely like God. 
He is God. He was in the beginning with God. And so far before the days of Isaiah, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, reigned supreme over all creation. And He would make His introduction into humanity in the stable of Bethlehem, in the manger. But how are we to understand Him? Well, the book of John says that we have beheld the glory, the glory of the one and only, the one who uh, was made flesh and who dwelt among us. How are we to know Him? Well, Isaiah gives us four names that I will move through very quickly. And in these four names, we see a couple things about them. Number one, we see Christ's profound counsel. He's called Wonderful Counselor. The Hebrew word here literally means a wonder of a counselor. The word wonderful literally in the Hebrew speaks of actions that are beyond the bounds of human power. It can be translated as astonishing or amazing. In fact, in Judges 13, 18, the same Hebrew word is used and it's translated incomprehensible or beyond understanding. We have an amazing counselor. Now you take that word wonderful and you merge it together with counselor and we see that Jesus is the greatest advisor or counselor or confidant the world will ever know. The Old Testament continually speaks of a counselor as one who advises, one who rules. And isn't that what we need as Christians today? Don't we need counseling? Don't we need someone to lead us, to guide us? Someone to go to? We always are pursuing a counseling of men. And yet we have a wonderful counselor. We have one who, who we can go to through the work of the Holy Spirit that we can go and seek the counsel. Our lives are filled with decisions. Aren't you glad that you have a counselor that was there before the world was ever created? Aren't you glad that you have one who knows you better than anyone else? Because he knit you together in your mother's womb? Aren't you glad that because your world is full of details and decisions that need to be made, aren't you glad that there is one named Jesus who sustains the world, who holds the world together by the power of his word, the books of, book of Colossians says? The one who goes and sustains the galaxies each and every day, moment by moment, one who never sleeps or tires from doing what he does. Aren't you glad we have a counselor? One who has immense wisdom, infinite wisdom, to tell us where to go and what to do. In our worlds that are filled with disasters, aren't you glad that we have one who has commanded the seas and the stars in heaven? Aren't you glad that there is one who can sympathize with every one of our temptations? And knows the struggle of living in a world filled with sin. We have a counselor. We have one who has gone before us. One who knows what it means to live life. He was one of us. We have a counselor. The question is, do you know him? Do you go to him? Do you receive counsel from him? Jesus has counsel for every situation and every crisis. And he has a plan for every problem that we face. That's what the great song, what a friend we have in Jesus is all about. He's our friend. He invites us to come and to take counsel 
from him. His wisdom is beyond measuring out, the book of Romans chapter 11 says. But not only is he a wonderful counselor, he's a mighty God. And we see his powerful character. Jesus isn't just like God, he is God. He's the mighty God. He has supernatural power. Because Christ is the mighty God, he is in control of all things. The word mighty here means the strong one, a valiant warrior. The title was used to describe a hero back in Old Testament days. David would speak of Christ in a similar way when he would talk about the king of glory. Who is this king of glory? Who's this hero? Who is the one who has more power than all the others combined? As a wonderful counselor, you can put it this way. Christ makes the plans, but as a mighty God, he makes the plans work. Not only does Jesus make plans, not only does he counsel us on what plan is the best one to go, but the Bible says that all things work according to his purposes. He makes them work. He's the mighty God. He's the one who has come. I love what John MacArthur has said, that Christ the King loves to step into a world of chaos and not only provide wonderful counsel, but also to display his divine power by bringing order to that chaos. In other words, he not only tells his subjects what to do, but he energizes them to do it. He does this because he can, and he's our mighty God. So how do we apply this? Jesus can handle any situation because he's all-powerful. In his ministry here on earth, he healed the lame, the blind, and the sick. He performed mighty miracles. He calmed the storms. He brought a man back from the dead named Lazarus. And therefore, he can do anything that he wants. He can give you victory over the sin that you find yourself struggling with. He can help you in times of temptation to turn away from it. He can find in the difficult times like Isaiah's day of gloom and doom, he can fight battles that never seem to be able to be won. And all he asks is that we live for him. We honor him as our holy, if you will, hero. That we would worship him as the valiant God, the mighty warrior, and praise him forever. It is during the Christmas season that Jesus comes and he is our mighty God. The one, even though the world seems to have impossible issues that we have to face, that he is the one who says, with God, nothing is impossible. Is there something in your life that you are struggling with uh, this uh, season that seems impossible? Give it to your mighty God. Give it to your valiant warrior. Isaiah says he will be called mighty God. The next thing that we see is his personal comfort that he brings. He is the everlasting father. Now before we get confused, Jesus is not all of a sudden usurping the role of God the father within the Godhead of the Trinity. This isn't talking about his position as being the father now in heaven. But what it's telling us is how he will interact with his people. How he will begin to involve himself. And he says that I will be the everlasting father. Well, how is Jesus a father? There are three ways that I see throughout the scripture. Number one, he is like a father because he has given us life. 
just like our fathers are the ones who allow us to come into the world through uh, the life of the dad and and mom. Uh, Jesus comes and he's the one who gives us life. He's the one that gives us the ability to receive eternal life. And because of that, Jesus acts as a father, one who watches us grow from the moment of conception, of justification in our lives to the process of sanctification, seeing us become like his son, becoming like him. And so he he gives us life. Number two, he's a father because he provides for us. Philippians 4.19 says that Jesus is the one who gives us all that we need. Just like a good earthly father, Jesus provides for us. He takes care of the needs that we have. Thirdly, we see that he cares for us. He loves us. He loves us as a father loves his own children. He, that means he will love us and he'll minister to us. He comes to our aid in times of need. He disciplines us when we sin. He's like a good father who we are to follow in his footsteps. But he isn't just like my father, a good earthly father. But Isaiah says he's the everlasting father. And that word everlasting means a couple of things. Number one, it will go on forever, of course. But number two, the idea of everlasting in the Hebrew literally means that he will be completely and utterly consistent in his job as a father. I wish I could say that, but I can't. I love my boys to death, but I cannot be consistent like Jesus is. I will fail my children. And there will be a day when I will no longer be their dad because I'll be gone from this earth. And yet Jesus is our everlasting Father. So maybe today you feel like an orphan. Maybe you find yourself with a sense of real abandonment by those around that are to love you and to care for you. Jesus is there. He has come into the world to be your father, to love you, to care for you, to minister to you, to give you the power and the strength that you need to find victory in a world of defeat. He's our uh, everlasting father. Finally, he is our prince of peace, which speaks about a peaceful countenance. The word, the Hebrew word here literally can mean that the prince that is coming brings peace. The phrase was used when a king would send his son to a neighboring kingdom. And when there were rumors of war, when the neighboring king would expect the general to come and bring the armies to surround his kingdom, he is surprised that the, the neighboring then king sends his son. Why would he send his son? Because the sending of a son instead of a general meant that the king desired to bring about peace, not war. God could have sent his generals. He could have sent his angels, myriads upon myriads of them to come and destroy the world. But Isaiah says he's sending a prince of peace. What God is saying is, hey, world... The coming of my son says that there is a time of peace. I am not going to make war at this time, but I'm sending peace. Isn't that what the angels said? When they announced the coming of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when the angels announced to the shepherds uh, what is going to take place, he says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. 
He says, I'm sending my son and there will be peace. He's the prince of peace. He brings peace with God. Romans 5, 1 tells us that we have peace with God because of Jesus. He brings us peace with one another because when we see Jesus, we recognize that we're all sinners and in need of grace. And so what does it mean that we may be different colors or different ethnicities or or, or find ourselves in different places? We're all sinners in need of grace. And when we see Jesus, we learn that we should live at peace with our brothers and sisters because God has brought us peace. And Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, No matter our lives and our trouble, that the peace of God will transcend all our understandings, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You troubled this, this season? Go to the Prince of Peace. Go to Him. These names of Jesus remind us that we celebrate the coming of no ordinary baby, but we celebrate a Savior's birth. We celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, who came and destroyed the works of sin and the devil and who now is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But Christmas doesn't just remind us of what took place before. It reminds us to look ahead and that we must look at the advent that is yet to come. The advent that is yet to come. We see the first advent clearly in our text, but scholars tell us that there's signs of a second advent as well. We see that the government will be on his shoulders. We see that he will reign from David's throne forever, that his kingdom will bring an eternal peace and judgment or justice. And all of those tell of a day where Christ will reign as king here on earth. This speaks of his millennial reign where he will reign in Jerusalem as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This baby that is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace is coming back. But when he comes back, my friends, he will not come as a baby bringing forth peace and goodwill towards men. But the Bible says that he will come and he will bring judgment and a sword. He will come to deal with those who have turned away and rebelled. He's not going to bring peace. He will not be a cooing baby, but a conquering king. So what does that lead us to? Knowing that he is going to come back, my friends, it reminds us to live holy lives. To live holy lives. What does that mean in context this morning? It means live in light of the first advent. It means live in light that Jesus has already come into the world. That light has broken away the darkness. That gladness has taken away the gloom. What that means is that we as Christians live lives uh, knowing that we are children of an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace. That we live in light of the counsel received from God's Word from our wonderful Counselor. That when things look like they are full of despair and trouble, that we can look to our circumstances and say, He is our mighty God. We need to live holy lives in light of what we know of the story of Christmas. To pursue that. And number two, we need to let others know. Let others know. What that means is we are to be like the shepherds. We are to be like the prophets. We are to be like the wise men who hear of the coming of Jesus and live in light of it, who live lives of holiness and obey the words that are given to them. My friends, we as Christians should be letting others know about Christ. Why should we tell others? 
We should tell others about the first Christmas, the first Advent, so that they will not, with fear and trepidation, stand before the second coming of Christ, unprepared for Christ's coming as the conquering King. Well, how do we do that? I'm asked so many times, give some practical ways. In your ministry update, we don't just put things in there to fill spaces and to say, look at the programs that we have. But the December ministry update is full of opportunities. This week on Wednesday, uh, we are going to be kicking off a uh, outreach uh, to some strategic areas in uh, strategic neighborhoods in our area. And we have the opportunity to give away a New Testament Bible and information about our church and, and to do that at a very low cost, around a dollar for each home that we reach. And so we're going to be filling uh, bags to be able to hang uh, on the doors of, of uh, our neighbors and our friends. And we need you to be a part of that on Wednesday and then to distribute them on Saturday. That's a way to share the good news. We have the ladies' Christmas dinner where you can invite, ladies, you can invite a friend to come and hear the good news of Jesus. We have Christmas gatherings where you can invite people into your home and in a non-confrontational way you can share the good news of Christmas. You can share the good news of Christmas by uh, being filled with the joy of the one who knows that Christ came the first time. And for those that have trusted him as their savior, that his second coming will be a time of great joy and peace. Share that with the world. Announce it. An opportunity to teach your children the story of Advent through the Advent devotionals. To be a part of Christmas programs. Make Christmas not another part of your life that's just like any other normal day, but make it a time where we, just like Isaiah, point to our Savior in heaven. And with every name that we can come up with, with every praise that we can conjure up in our hearts to say just as Isaiah did, He is the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the wonderful Counselor. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would live in light of the names that Isaiah has uttered. That we in our world of gloom and despair would pursue You. That Lord, we would make a reality of the understanding that You have come into the world. You have brought hope in a time of despair. You have brought peace in a time of war. You have brought love in a time of hatred. You have brought light in a time of darkness. Lord, let us live in light of that. Allow us to be changed, to live differently. The writer of um, uh, 1 Peter, Peter the Apostle says that we are to live upright and holy lives until you come. Lord, let that begin today. Let our words announce to the workplace, to the schools, to the neighborhoods that we live in, to the people and family and friends that will come into our presence in this next month, that we would utter the true meaning of Christmas, that we would articulate that and call people to repentance. Lord, whether it's through the ministry of this church or through the ministry of our own personal outreach, that lives would be changed because they have come in contact with the great God and Prince of Peace. We love you and praise you for your coming. We thank you because it means redemption of our lives. And so we leave this place giving you the glory and honor and praise for all that you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.